When I was in college, one of my uh, freshman year classmates, looking back now, I can say with good confidence he was a pretty misguided individual when it came to things of the Lord, things of the scriptures, and 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 his interactions with his fellow classmates as well. He was, he was a bit of a jokester, which oftentimes provided a lot of needed levity in the midst of a long semester with deadlines and papers and tests and all those sorts of things. But sometimes his jokes would stray into a ter- territory that can best be classified as sacrilegious. Uh, things that would be said would be just like, I, I'm just not sure that you should be saying those things, man. Uh, I, I appreciate you trying to make the joke, but that should probably be left alone. One of his favorite movies was Talladega Nights, and he would often model his prayers after the main character uh, in that film. Uh, Dear sweet baby Jesus, please do this, that, or the other thing. That's how he prayed, and often it was as a joke. I think there were times where he meant to be sincere, but more often than not, I, I do believe there was just that jokey spirit about it. And I have to just say right off the bat, I have not seen that movie in its entirety, so I just, I, I, this is by no means an endorsement of the film of any way. I have seen the clip of that prayer on YouTube and just the, how that prayer unfolds. And if that's not something you've seen, the main character, Ricky Bobby, he's, he prays in that way, dear sweet baby Jesus. And he's actually challenged on the points of that prayer and how he's referring to Christ. And he's challenged, he says, you know, he didn't stay a baby, he did in fact grow up and he became a man. And there's a point of discussion. Ricky's response to the pushback was this, well, you can pray to any version of Jesus you want, baby Jesus, teenage Jesus, bearded Jesus, whoever you want. And then he says, I like Christmas Jesus the best. As the scene unfolds, the rest of the characters, they begin to chime in with how they picture the Jesus that they pray to. Uh, One of the characters, his name is Cal, he pictures him in a tuxedo t-shirt, because that communicates some level of formality, and yet, that he also likes to party. And Cal likes to party, and so he likes to picture Jesus likes to party too. Ricky's son likes to picture Jesus as a ninja fighting evil samurai, and then so on. The scene goes, the different descriptions, the descriptions that go on. And eventually the main character brings us back, okay, I'm supposed to be praying now. And he resumes his prayer to, and I quote, six-pound, eight-ounce, newborn infant Jesus. What were each of those characters doing in that scene? Just at a base level, as they're thinking and picturing about how they like to think about the Jesus that they pray to. I submit to you that they were making Jesus after their own image. They were ignoring what God has said about Jesus Christ in His Word and instead creating their own version of Jesus to suit themselves and to fit whatever their current lifestyle or preference was. And you might say, Pastor Ken, that's just a movie. I mean, it's not real, like that's not reality, and I, I agree, I realize that, but, but I want, what I want us to realize is what is played off for laughs in the film reveals something significant about our human condition and how we tend to operate in and ourselves in our default setting. We all do tend to craft an image of Jesus in our minds and, and let that shape how we think about Him, how we interact with Him in our own prayers rather than allow the revealed Word to guide us and direct us. 
teaching us about the incarnate Word. I don't know how many of you have ever taken a, like, something like a Myers-Briggs personality test or something like it. And there's a whole bunch of different personality tests out there. We can talk all day long about the value or lack thereof of those tests. They, I won't get into all of that. I read about an interesting experiment that was conducted. Of course, these tests, you, they ask you different questions about how you interact with the world, how you interact with people, what your preferences are, and then based on your responses, it spits out a personality type. Oh, you are this way. You know, you're a IJP, whatever those letters are. Well, there's an experiment where a group of individuals, they were given this personality test, and they were said, here, take this, but don't take it for how you would respond. Take it for how you think Jesus would answer the questions. And so they did. And the results for that group were all over the map. Again, I think this reveals for us the dangers of seeking to craft an image of Jesus in our own minds and projecting that out. We, we, we have this image of what we think Jesus is like, and based on that, we think that, you know, you have heard the question, what would Jesus do? Well, that very, very much depends on what, who you view Jesus to be and, and how He actually conducted His life. It can be a very good and helpful question unless we are very misguided in our view of who Jesus Christ is. I think this is one of the fundamental dangers of things like the TV show The Chosen, aside from the fact of its close LDS associations and its influence from the Book of Mormon. Uh, you, there's creators there that are crafting a, a creative or a, uh, um, well, the word just went right out of my head, the word that I'm thinking of, but they've created an image of Jesus and storylines around His life, and, but they're just projections of human imagination. We don't find any of the accounts of these things. We don't find all the details of those conversations in the pages of Scripture. They're projections of human beings about what they think Jesus was like and not what God was pleased to reveal in His Word. I believe there is inherent danger in this. Now, does this mean that we can't know anything about what Jesus is like? Of course, the answer to that is no. We, we can know a lot about what Jesus is like. We've been walking through this wonderful book of Mark and seeing all the glorious things that what Jesus did, the things He accomplished, the miracles that were performed, all these wonderful things, because the reality is that Jesus Christ really did come in the flesh. He had a childhood. He grew up. He lived a life. And all of that is important, both theologically and practically, for how we live our lives. As silly as, as it is to think of praying to little sweet baby Jesus... The reality is, is that Jesus was once a tiny human newborn baby. That is a fact of history, and it is unimaginably significant for us in our lives. We do need to be on guard against making Jesus to be out in our own image and just whatever our imagination, however we picture Him, just 
I just want to picture him this way because that's the one I like to pray to, this, this image of Jesus that we had in our minds. But we can and should revel in the fact that Jesus really was a human being, a real human being, and everything that that means who walked the face of the earth and that he is knowable. You know, in God's providence today, we had our reflection on the Lord's table focused on the humanity of Jesus Christ. And today's sermon is all about the humanity of Jesus Christ and God's providence. He brought all of that together. Sermon is a little bit of difference from our usual exposition. Usually I'm picking a passage of Scripture and we're just walking through that verse by verse. We're going to be a little bit all over the place today examining different texts and, and reflecting on different truths that Scripture reveals for us about the humanity of Christ. But today I do want us to consider the importance of the humanity of Christ. What does it mean when we say, yes, we affirm the true deity of Jesus Christ and everything that that means and the true humanity of Jesus Christ and everything that that means. What does it mean that we affirm both of these things together? I hope that we would all be able to agree with the statement that, yes, Jesus Christ is truly divine and He is truly human, both natures present in the Lord Jesus Christ. But why does that articulation matter? Why is it important for us to think about Christ being truly human? In today's age, we don't often face opposition to the concept of the humanity of Christ. Perhaps in different sectors, in different conversations, we may have pushed back on the question of the deity of Christ. There are different uh, cults that are out there. There are different religious groups that might think of Jesus in different ways. Of course, we think of groups like the Jehovah's Witness that believe Jesus is one of the chief created beings, but He's not fully God in everything that that means, but He is a lesser being than God of the Father. And so they would deny His deity. Most pagans and atheists would be willing to acknowledge the historical reality of the person of Jesus Christ, that yes, there was a human being who did walk upon the face of the earth, but they would abjectly deny the deity of Christ. So in today's day and age, we often have that kind of pushback to things like the deity of Christ, even though His humanity might be accepted. But that has not always been true in the history of the church. As was mentioned by Jim earlier, in the history of the church, there were different individuals who tried to put forward that there was that Jesus Christ wasn't truly human. Perhaps He was an apparition, or He just seemed human, but it wasn't actual substance. There was no substance to His humanity. I won't bore you with all of the details and all the names of these ancient heresies, because there were many of them, with many names named after, mostly often after the names of their followers or or things of that nature. But a lot of these errors, they sprung up fr with, from individuals who were wrestling with this concept. How can it be that, that you would have these two natures in one person? How can someone be truly divine and truly human at the same time? And so they're wrestling with the tension of that. And, and how do these things fit together? Some believe that the physical world is inherently evil. And so to say that, that God could take on human flesh would be an affront to His deity because He's God. He is divine. He would never take on human flesh because 
the physical, the fleshly, is inherently evil. They sought to protect the deity of Christ. Some were afraid that by emphasizing the humanity of Christ too much, it might lead to us to discount the divinity of Christ. So, in order to protect the divinity, they proposed that you know, maybe Jesus' human nature was absorbed into the divine nature. And so, even though Jesus perhaps might have been born as a human being, that nature was actually absorbed and uh, it, it eventually takes a complete backseat to the divine nature of Christ. And again, it's an effort to protect the deity of Christ, but sacrificing the humanity of Christ. The tragic thing is in the process of surrendering one of the most important truths about who Jesus Christ really is. In order to protect the divinity of Christ, they were inadvertently surrendering something that is so core to the gospel that it can very easily be argued that they're surrendering the gospel itself. Why is the humanity of Christ so important? Well, it truly does come down to this. If Jesus Christ is not truly human, then you and I are still in our sins. So let us consider the reality of the humanity of Christ today. We're going to look at some of the evidence that Scripture presents that shows us that, yep, He was truly human, and we're going to do that more in an overview fashion as there's so many texts that we could examine, we could get bogged down there, but there are so many, so many things that are revealed throughout Scripture that show the true humanity of Christ. And then we will talk about the implications and the significance of that as we consider these truths. So let's begin with the reality of the humanity of Christ. First, as we know, He was physically born. We have the wonderful birth narratives that we find, of course, this is the Christmas season. After all, we're remembering the nativity scene where there is baby Jesus lying in the manger. And it is right that we do celebrate this. Like this, this is something worth celebrating. The, the incarnation, God taking on human flesh, it is right for us to celebrate that. Jesus Christ was born. Jim read this text earlier, John chapter 1, verse 14, the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. We have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That first part of the Apostles' Creed that many know so well, it speaks of Jesus Christ, the only Son of the Father, His only Son, our Lord, who has conceived of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Truths that have been confessed since the very beginning of the church. And we could read through the birth narratives from Matthew and Luke and and. For a long period of time, I, I could quote so much of Luke chapter 2 by heart because of, of how often, how frequently we would return to that passage of Scripture, particularly around the Christmas season, reading that story over and over again. Of course, his conception was unique. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, but he had a normal gestational period. He was physically born. He had a childhood and adolescent life. He had young adult life stages. He progressed through life normally like everyone else. 
And further evidence of his humanity is seen in that he experienced many of the same things that we experience. Even as we've gone through the book of Mark, we have seen this. We have seen him grow tired and need to sleep. Think of Mark chapter 4 as he is calming the stormy sea. Before he calms the sea, well, how does the text describe him? He's asleep on the boat and the disciples had to wake him. In different places, we see him hungry. We see him fasting in the wilderness. And he comes out after the, his time of fasting, and his text says that he was hungry, and angels ministered to him. We see him get thirsty. John chapter 4, he approaches the woman at the well, and he says, Would you get me something to drink? As he is hanging on the cross, our Lord cries out, I thirst, and they provide him with, with some wine mixed with myrrh to drink. He gets hungry and thirsty. He grows tired and weary. He experiences pain as he goes to the cross, and of course, he physically dies as he hangs upon that cross and he gives up his spirit. All of this and more is evidence of the true humanity of Jesus Christ. He really was a human being with flesh and blood coursing through his veins, a heart beating just like yours does. Later New Testament authors also accept the reality of the humanity of Christ. For example, Paul, as he writes to the Romans in his Uh, In his beginning to that book, he writes, Paul, a servant of Jesus uh, Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his apostles in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. I didn't even get into all the genealogies of Jesus Christ. That shows he had a lineage. He had a physical lineage descendant of David. So often these are details that we take for granted and we just, we just accept them. Like, yes, this, yeah, Jesus was a man. He was a human. He was on earth. But I wanted to appeal to you today that we cannot take this truth for granted. We don't just want to gloss over this as just something, yeah, we know. We know. Consider the significance of this. The Apostle John wrote in the first of his epistles, 1 John 4, verse 2, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already. In that context, John is calling the church to be discerning. There are different false teachers that have come out. There are different people that are trying to teach the church different things. And and John says, hey, here's one way that you can know if someone is a true teacher or a false teacher. You want to find out what they believe about Jesus Christ. What do they teach about Jesus? And here, John says that there are some who deny that Jesus Christ really came in the flesh, denying His humanity, denying that He actually was a man walking the face of the earth. Let 
So John calls us to be discerning. Not everyone who says they're from God, not everyone who says to speak from the Word of God is actually doing so. And we have the responsibility of comparing everything that is said to the Word of God and saying, hey, does this line up? And I hope you do that with me as well, even as I teach the Word. Does this line up with Scripture? One of the tests is about what they believe about the person of Jesus Christ. If they deny His humanity, that person is not a teacher from God. He's going to reiterate this point in his second epistle, 2 John verse 7. He says, many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Again, there's a denial of this truth, a denial of this reality. And John says, such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. This is a big deal. The humanity of Christ is, has tremendous weight for us. And so he goes on to say in verse 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, he does not have God. But whoever does abide in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. So we see then the reality of the humanity of Christ and, and the weight that is placed upon it. John places salvific weight on this doctrine. It cannot be overstated. The significance of the true humanity of Christ must be embraced. But why? What makes it so very important? Aside from just accepting the reality of what Scripture says and just saying, hey, this is what Scripture teaches, so I need to embrace that because it is authoritative, why, from a theological perspective, is it so critical that Jesus Christ truly was human in the flesh? From a theological standpoint, the reality of Christ's humanity, it's not just a fact of history, but it is truly a theological necessity. And there are several things I want us to consider. First, consider that the one who was to die for us he must have been like us in a variety of respects. Consider Galatians chapter 4. It says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were, who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Christ had to be true humanity so that it could be rightly said of Him that He was born under the law, just as we all are born under the law. Only a human being can be born under the law because it was to humanity that God gave the law. And Paul says in the book of Romans that all are under the law, even those who are not Jews, because God has given the law written on their hearts, the conscience that binds us. So it could not be that a being who is never subject to the law of God could redeem a humanity under the law. It had to be someone who was born under the law as well, and here is why. We need a perfect sacrifice. 
We need a perfect sacrifice. We need someone who has been subject to the same law as us and yet without the sin. See, it would make no sense for, for someone, it's just for illustrative purposes, someone perhaps from another country to say, oh yeah, they are innocent of breaking our laws. Right? Perhaps we have some city code or something and say, oh yeah, this, there's that person over in Zimbabwe and they're innocent of breaking our city codes. Well, that's, that's a meaningless statement. He's, he's in Zimbabwe. He is not under our law. He is not subject to our law. So it is a meaningless thing to say. He, they couldn't keep our laws because they are not under our laws. But Jesus was born under the law so that He might live that perfect life under the law and thus be our perfect substitute. It is necessary for Him to be human so that He could fulfill the law as a human. It was necessary for Him to be human so that He could be a genuine substitute. Have you ever asked the question, you know, why is it that we don't sacrifice animals anymore? The sacrificial system, right, the Jewish people, they had that. They, they had these, this constant flow of, of animals, rams and bulls and goats and all these things that were sacrificed Why don't we do that anymore? Well, we could rightly respond, well, Jesus is our substitute, but, but why couldn't it just be the animals? Why, couldn't we, why, why isn't that good enough? Why couldn't that just be something that was done over and over again? Why did Jesus have to become a human and die? Well, just another way, another way to illustrate this or by way of analogy, imagine if someone committed some crime and they're being tried in the courtroom and the judge renders him guilty and is about to perform the sentence upon them and then someone stands up and says, judge, judge, I just want to interject here. I want you to let this man go because I have arranged for someone else to take that man's place. You're about to sentence him five years in prison. I've arranged for someone else to serve that sentence for him. And then the man brings in a goat says, this goat shall serve that sentence for this man. That would be absurd, wouldn't it? That, that goat didn't commit the crime. It, it may be said innocent in some way because it, it hasn't sinned, but it, it's because the creature doesn't have a volitional will, right? It's a creature of instincts. So it cannot rightly serve as a substitute for anyone. What we learn from Scripture is that the sacrificial system of the Old Testament was never truly intended to be a genuine sin-removal ritual in a true sense. It was always intended to picture something, to foreshadow something. It was intended to remind the people of their own sinfulness and point them forward to the messianic hope that would come in the person of the Davidic king who would one day redeem them. So we have passages like Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law has for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, 
would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in the sacrifice, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It doesn't work. It's a reminder of our sins that this is what we deserve. We deserve to die on that altar and have the wrath of God poured out upon us. But these things, they can't actually take away sins. And so in just a few verses later, in uh, verse 11, he says, Every priest, he stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. A bull or a goat or a, goat or a ram, that can never take away sin because it is an imperfect substitute. They aren't human. We need a perfect human, born under the law to be our substitute and to take away our sins. Without the humanity of Christ, there would be no substitutional sacrifice. There would be no forgiveness of sins. There would be no redemption. We would still be in our sins. But as it is, Jesus was truly human. And thus, He was our perfect sacrifice, as the writer of the Hebrews is going to go on to say in, in verse 12. But when Christ had offered Him for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Praise the Lord. For the humanity of Jesus Christ. And, and I truly hope that this is not just, just some theological dribble for you or just some, some theological musings that you think about the significance of it. Yeah, from a theological standpoint, it is significant. But I hope you see the, 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 the weight of this for our lives. And I hope you know that this has practical ramifications for you today and every moment that you live. See, not only do we get the, the theological benefits of Christ's humanity, but there are so many practical benefits of the humanity of Christ. And there's going to be spending more time in the book of Hebrews as we consider these things. First and foremost, of course, is the practical benefit of our salvation, right? Praise God, I was a sinner on my way to hell, but by the grace of God, because of Jesus Christ, He has redeemed me from my sin. Now I am his child. My sins are forgiven. But as they say, but wait, there's more. Consider the intercessory and the mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. Going, flipping back to Hebrews chapter 2, we find these words. But we see him for, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor, because of the suffering of death, so that the, by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. I'm going to skip down to verse 14. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham." Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Hope you understand what that teaches and what that means for us. Jesus had to be a, a perfect human being in order to be our perfect high priest. And think for a moment what a priest does. Of course, for the nation of Israel, there was a priest who would stand between God and the people, and the people would bring their sacrifices, they would bring their, bring their prayers, bring their petitions to the priest, and the priest would, would take the offerings, take the sacrifices give them up on the altar, light the incense, do all these things, and go before the Lord and express the prayers of the people to the Lord. He was the intercessor, the go-between between God and man. There was the priest who stood in the middle. And now, Jesus Christ, the God-man, the one who is truly God and truly man, now He stands as that perfect high priest, that, that mediator, that intercessor between God and man. So we can come before our Lord with our worship, with our requests, with our petitions, with confidence knowing that He is our high priest. Jesus does all of this for us and is, He can only do so because of His perfect humanity. This is something that Paul emphasized in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. He was a man. He was a, a human being. And, and I want you to just think for a moment about what this means for us. Think about what this means for you. That Jesus Christ, in, in the things that He experienced, so we, going back to that Hebrews text, because He has suffered when attempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. Think about the temptations that you face in this life and the things that, that come against us in this world. When you're tempted by sin in your flesh to rebel against the Lord and, and you maybe you cry out to Him for strength to help you do what is right, to give you the fortitude and the strength that is necessary you can have confidence that that prayer has been heard because Jesus is your high priest and Jesus can fulfill that ministry because He was truly human, experienced everything that we experience yet without sin. When you lift up your voice to the Lord and make a request to Him and bring, bring your petitions before Him and crying out to Him, you can have confidence that those prayers are heard because of this blessed truth 
that Jesus is truly human and truly God in one person. We've transitioned our Sunday school time to a time of, of prayer as a church family. We've been only been doing that for a couple of weeks, and personally, I've been encouraged through it. I, I hope others have been as well. But as we pray, as we pray through Scripture, as we lift our requests unto the Lord and, and, and think about all the things that God has done, as we worship Him through prayer, those prayers are heard because of this blessed truth. This is the application that the writer of Hebrews draws later in chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Jesus knows what you're going through. Jesus knows what you're going through. He knows what it's like to be tempted and tried. He knows what it's like to, to need to find His strength from the Spirit of God and from the Father. And that could not be true if Jesus did not come in the flesh. The author of the Hebrews takes such great delight in the high priestly work of Christ, something that he comes back to over and over again throughout the book. And we're not going to look at all of those texts. We could flip to chapter 7. We could read about all the, the blessedness that is there. But one final passage I'll take us to is back to chapter 10. We were there earlier. I'm going to take us back there again. But later on in the chapter, as he's offering a conclusion to this truth, this reality that we have, this high priest, the writer that Hebrews says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened up through, for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great, high, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You can draw near to the creator of the universe because Jesus became a man. You can talk to the one who has made all things, the one who sustains the very universe by the sheer might of His power. Because Jesus became a man. Your access to the Father is dependent upon the high priestly work of Christ. And that high priestly work of Christ is possible because of the blessed truth that He was truly human. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It's the only way. It's the only pathway. 
But Christmas is only one week and one day away. It's just right around the corner. As you go about your lives, as you just think about these things of this, this holiday season, next time you see a, a nativity scene, maybe on, on someone's front lawn, maybe there's a picture somewhere in a store shop or something, next time you see a nativity scene and, and think of that baby lying in the manger, pray and thank God for the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Thank Him for, for the perfect substitute that is possible because He became a man. Thank Him for His high priestly work and thank Him doing so knowing that that prayer of thanks is only heard because He was born, because He became a human being, because He walked the face of this earth and experienced all the things that we read about. Your prayer of thanks, your prayer of gratitude, your prayer of petition, every, all of that is heard because of this marvelous truth that God became flesh, dwelt among us. Father, thank you so much for the blessedness of these truths, these realities, that Jesus Christ is a man, walked the face of the earth, lived, he died, and he rose again. As we think about the incarnation of Christ and we think about what, what is accomplished for us, we praise you, we thank you so much. We thank you that Christ is interceding for us even now. We thank you that our prayers are heard, that even as I speak these words right now, that I know that, that my prayers aren't just going out into the void, they're not just bouncing off the ceiling, but they are heard by you because of the work that Christ did for us, because He is our perfect high priest, because He is truly God and truly man, inseparably united in one person forever. May we never take our eyes off the truth of Jesus Christ. I pray all of this in the name of Him. Amen. Stand and sing our closing song together as we consider the person of Christ.